Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. It's a pleasure to be back here. This is the final GAI seminar of the year, unless we get any others. And it's good to be able to end on a high note with Jan Islam, who's, who's an adjunct professor with us at uh, Griffith Asia Institute and distinguished contributor to academic life, scholarly life at Griffith University. He's going to be talking today about the changing labour laws and relationship with jobs in Indonesia. Over to you. Thank you, Ian, for your kind introduction. Before I start my formal presentation, I'd like to make a brief reference to this year's Nobel Prize winners in economics. Three of them got it. One of them is David Card, who is at the University of California, Berkeley. Of course, the alma mater of our very own David Shack. I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> so you chose the right, you chose the right university. Anyway, so what he did was, along with his co-author, unfortunately he passed away, Alan Kruger, he devised a new empirical technique, which we call natural experiments in, in, in economics. And he demonstrated that using that technique and focusing on two border states, I, I can't recall the two, what two border states are, they couldn't find any negative employment impact of minimum wages, despite the fact that the border states had rather different policy regimes with respect to wage, wages. It's like saying, let us study Queensland and New South Wales as border states, and if they have different policy regimes that allow them to set different minimum wage levels, how would that impact on employment? And, and he basically showed we can't find any impact. Now, this has led an Australian scholar, John Hawkins, who wrote recently in the conversation that David Card has discovered the Loch Ness monster in economics, <laughs> which is basically... You know, like the Loch Ness Monster, we are constant, always made wary of and be scared about the harmful effects of minimum wages and other legislation, but in real life we can't seem to find it. And so David Card started this particular current in, in economics, which is sometimes called new labor economics. So cut a long story short, when some officials of the ADB got in touch with me last year, they said, would you be able to do a paper that draws on these contrarian ideas? Because we would like you to prepare this brief for the Ministry of Manpower, which is going to be one of the implementing agencies of the omnibus law and job creation, which I'm going to talk about. Because the ADB was keen to ensure that the government agencies adopt a more balanced perspective on labor regulations. I duly did that. I, I wrote the paper put in all the references and, 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 and showed the numbers. And I made two webinar presentations to ministry officials last year. Now, I don't know about your experience, but, but my experience of dealing with the Indonesian bureaucrats is that they are past masters at concealing their views. And they'll never tell you <laughs> whether they like or loathe the paper. So all I do know is that it's languishing as an internal document somewhere. <laughs> So I'm therefore grateful to Ian for giving me the opportunity to share these ideas and be able to disseminate some of the findings. So with that a prologue out of the way, let me focus on the paper itself, which as you can see from the title is called Reforming Labor Regulations from the Perspective of Indonesia's Omnibus Law and Job Creation. There are promises, and I'm going to focus a lot on the pitfalls. Just to point out that the Omnibus Law and Job Creation was approved in November of last year. It's known as Law 11-20, and the entire sort of legal document apparently runs for nearly 2,000 pages. Um, so I don't think anybody's really read it carefully, but that's what it is like. 
Implementing regulations are needed to convert the legislation into action, and that's where the Minister of Manpower is involved, which is why I was asked to write this policy before them. It was issued recently with the start date of April 2021. The legislation is intended to improve the business environment and create flexible labor market. These are the stated objectives of the government. And let's go further. What is it that they mean by the business environment? I don't know whether you follow this, but the World Bank has something called Doing Business Report, DBR. You may or may not know that DBR has now been abandoned by the World Bank. Uh, the ease of doing business index is no longer regarded as part of the World Bank's product. And yet we have the Indonesian president in February 2020 saying, I want to improve Indonesia's ranking to the top 40 based on the World Bank's ease of doing business. And I, I wonder what he's thinking now <laughs> that the publication has been abandoned as a result of lots of scandals. Will improving the ease of doing business and will greater labor market flexibility, will they provide the necessary means by which we can attract FDI, enhance faster growth and foster job creation? That really is where the debate is. From the very beginning of this omnibus law, concerns have been expressed. And I was pleasantly surprised that apart from the street protests, the objections from some regional governors, and here's a picture of the kind of street process, very colorful, I think it's probably Jalan Sudirman, by looking at it. Something else has happened in terms of concerns. But let me give you the, uh, the summary of what it is. So it's now easier to recruit foreign labor, reduce limits on fixed-term contracts, more flexible working hours, reduce severance space. So if you're fired, the severance pay that you receive is going to be reduced. And more discretion for employers in labor-intensive industries and regional authorities to set minimum wages. And there is, in addition, an introduction of unemployment insurance, which Indonesia did not have, unlike, say, some of the other countries in the region. Let's look at some of the concerns. And I was pleasantly surprised, as I said before, to find a document released by the World Bank in July 2020, which says very clearly, the bill proposes reforms that could have adverse effects on people's health and safety. The environment and labor rights. Reforms of labor laws are less important than trade and investment reforms for the stimulation of new investment. That could be the ILO speaking. So I was surprised that they actually the World Bank expressed those sentiments, but it did. Subsequently, of course, the bank has kept rather quiet. It went along with the omnibus law as it was enacted. In Australia, you have many scholars, particularly at Melbourne and Monash, writing on this. Terry Carraway in the East Asia Forum earlier this year was very blunt. Indonesia's job creation law is a blow to labor, she says. So we need to ask then, are the regulatory reforms to make labor market more flexible, are they really the key to unlocking more investment, particularly in terms of attracting FDI, because that is what is often referred to, faster growth and more jobs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step back a bit and look at the so-called macro numbers. And this reminds me of a professor, someone called Brian Redaway at Cambridge, who used to say, dear chap, before you do anything, check the basic numbers. So we'll check the basic numbers here and find out where Indonesia is. Why do we need such reform? Is Indonesia doing very badly? And so if you look at the, so what I did was I simply went back to 1980. I can get the data and track growth right up to 2019. That's nearly 40 years worth of growth. 
And the orange line belongs to Indonesia. The gray line uh, depicts the emerging market and developing economies. There's no doubt that pre-1998, during the Soharto era, that was the golden age of growth for Indonesian <coughs> economy. But despite the massive double-digit recession in 1998, Indonesia has done actually quite well. It struggled a bit, at least until about 2006. But over the last 10 years, it has grown at par with and slightly above the emerging economy threshold. So growth-wise, I think the calculation that I have done is about 5.5%. is something that one can be quite proud of. I then looked at some numbers going back to 1950, thanks to Thomas Piketty and a few others who churn out these numbers from tax data and so on and so forth. And if you look at Indonesia, I mean, today it's 12 times richer than it was in 1950, and more importantly, it is double the 1999 level, because we are looking at the post Soharto era, so post-1999, it is double the 1999 level. And the orange figure uh, represents gross domestic product, and uh, the green figure represents national income. There's a technical difference between the two, but they're in the same direction. Moving on, its growth performance is at par with ASEAN. The first deep blue column represents growth. The second light blue column represents number of recessions. In terms of number of recessions, uh, Malaysia has had more, Philippines had more, Thailand more, uh, only Vietnam does a little better. Uh, but Indonesia's growth rate of about 5.5% is at par with and if not ahead of some of its ASEAN neighbors. So once again, I would say over a period of nearly 40 years, Indonesia has done quite well. If you compare Indonesia to Germany, to Japan, United States, these mature OECD economies, it obviously has grown much faster than those rich countries. So as you can see there, the first column, the deep blue column, is growth rate, and the second column are the number of recessions. And as you can see, countries such as Japan has had seven recessions, uh, United States five recessions, Germany, the, the economic powerhouse of the world, has had five recessions, Indonesia has two. So it has been very good at reducing the frequency of recessions, which we always say in economics is a good test of good economic management, if you can avoid recessions. If you look at the COVID recession in your 2020, Indonesia actually suffers a milder recession in 2020 and is expected to recover up to about 2026 at the same rate as ASEAN because the orange line which represents ASEAN cannot be distinguished from the Indonesian line of growth. So the both are, Indonesia are growing at par with ASEAN are expected to over the next few years. What I'm going to do next is ask, well, why then do we have this urge to grow faster? Because if you talk to any Indonesian policymaker, they'll say, oh, our growth is lousy, we're growing only at about 5%. We need to really recapture the growth rates of the Suharto era and grow at 6% or more for the next 10 to 20 years. I and mean, that's the standard refrain one gets to hear when you do discussions with them. What one should take account of is that there is always a secular growth decline, regardless of whether you are the United States, or whether you're Uganda, whether you're Indonesia, as countries grow richer, growth rates come down. That's one of those empirical regularities that have been demonstrated over and over again. And so Indonesian growth rate is likely to come down by 2045, when it becomes 100 years old, I guess, from 5.4 to near about 3%. That's where it is. So it could be 3.3 if it's aggregate growth rate, adjusted for population growth, it's around 3%. So that's where it is likely to grow. And despite that, 
growth convergence is going to happen. In other words, Indonesia is going to slowly and gradually go towards the living standards of richer countries, even at this current growth rate. So we should really focus not so much on a particular growth rate, but on the employment and social dividends from a given rate of growth. And that's where the debate ought to be focusing on. And unfortunately, there is, I would like to argue, growth fetishism, where you're just too preoccupied with a particular growth rate. And this is as true of Indonesia as it is in many other countries. Let me now look at the labor market. And this is where I think it becomes very important. In terms of labor market performance, this is a, a very important story that I want to dwell a, little, a minute or two on this one. As you can see, the unemployment rate actually goes up to about 11% by about 2005 and starts falling until today, or which in 2018 or 2019, the unemployment rate is the lowest that Indonesia has had over the last 20 years, about 5.3%. What happened, as I've written elsewhere, is that many analysts got concerned about the short-run jump in the unemployment rate between 2000 to 2005. Now, over that period also, the Indonesian government enacted the Manpower Act of 2003, which is widely regarded as a pro-labor legislation. So there was a temptation to invoke guilt by association. Look, we have far too generous labor legislation, and look what's happened to the unemployment rate. I'm going to connect the two dots, and that's what's happening. What they didn't do at the time is to wait for the data to come out. And as you increase the range of data observations, you get a rather different picture. That despite the so-called generous labor legislation of 2003, the unemployment rate kept on falling to about 5.3%, which incidentally is the target that a former Indonesian president, Yodo Yono, had. He said, I would like to see the Indonesian economy with an unemployment rate of around 5%. And that's where it ended up. I'm not quite sure what, this is pre-pandemic, by the way, so post-pandemic the numbers are going to be different. If you look at formal employment, registered formal employment, I say that there is a moderate increase in formal employment, but let us say, if you want to be a bit pessimistic, that there is no decline in formal employment over a period of the, the, the last three years. So the blue line represents male uh, employment, the orange line represents female employment. And formal employment, by the way, is one of the major indicators of the SDG framework. When we monitor the health of labor markets, we focus on what is the proportion of formal employment. Is it declining, constant, or rising? So on that score, Indonesia doesn't do too badly. If we look at another measure called NEET, or not in employment, education, or training, now that is yet another major indicator of the SDGs, which essentially tries to capture underutilization rates for young people. Once again, there is some evidence that although the underutilization rate as measured by NEET is high, about 25% in 2015, it seems to have come down a bit as well over time. If I go to real wages, I think we can comfortably say that real wages have gone up over since 1997, since the end of the last Asian financial crisis. And poverty, the Indonesian government claims, based on the national poverty line, it's fallen to less than 10%. So on the whole, it strikes me as a picture of a reasonably successful economy. And what surprised me most is when I looked at the inequality numbers. The share of income going to the top 1%. Now, we have this picture 
of Indonesia being dominated by a few filthy rich oligarchs. So when I looked at the pre-tax income share of the top 1%, I couldn't believe it. I can't believe it. What? Has it really fallen that low? <laughs> now, don't ask me how I got the numbers. Thomas Piketty is responsible for this, for this particular measure. So using the Thomas Pic Piketty metric, apparently inequality in Indonesia, in terms of the top 1%, is actually pretty reasonable. I don't know whether to accept the numbers, but that's how it appears. And this is data going back to 1920. From 1921 to 2019, there's a long run of data. Uh, one of the few countries in the world, in the developing world, that actually has historical data of this sort. So, that's where Indonesia is. Now you might say, Jan, gosh, you are you know, plugging the Indonesian economy like anything. And surely something must be wrong. And, and here it is. The labor market challenges are there, and we must acknowledge those labor market challenges of Indonesia. There's no doubt that still a relatively high degree of poverty and vulnerability, by which I mean the following. You can be poor today, but you're also at risk of poverty tomorrow. So you should add the two. So poverty is about 10%, actually poor, but potentially poor is another 30%. That means with any little shock, they can become poor. So that's what we call vulnerability. So if I add the current rate of poverty to vulnerability, that's a around 40% of the population. Now that's a big, big number. That's a big number. Gender disparities are acute. We know that especially in terms of the low incidence of female labor force participation rate. There's a high degree of informality. People working in unrecorded, unregistered enterprises, uh, no social mm, protection benefits of any nature. And that's 50% or so or more. And there's a high underutilization of young people in terms of this so-called SDG-compliant NEAT measure, which is more than 20% of the population. If you do estimate NEAT, let's say, for Germany or for Australia, it will be about 5%, less than 10%. So 20 is a very, very, very high number. So the actual numbers and levels are still quite high and unacceptably high for a, a rapidly growing middle-income economy like Indonesia. So there are challenges that we need to tackle. The question, of course, is... What, in addition, do we need to know? Can Indonesia continue in terms of its resource-driven economic strategy, or do we, does it need to move to innovation-driven growth? So these are some of the challenges, and therefore we need to ask, can they be resolved through conventional labor market reforms? That really is the question. So how do we know how bad is the Indonesian labor market regulatory framework? So there are ways of measuring it. One is called the EPL, or Employment Protection Legislation devised by the OECD. It's an index that runs from zero to six, six being the, the most stringent regulation, zero being the least stringent regulation. And if you look at Indonesia, which is the, the last column, uh, it does seem to have a significantly higher level of employment protection legislation relative to OECD and relative to other countries. So I did the same exercise for the ILO's EPLEX, which has a database which allows you to also estimate employment protection legislation. Once again, Indonesia is pretty high up, 0.6 out of a maximum score of 1, and is significantly higher than many of the other countries. So on those, yeah, on paper it does look like it has onerous labor regulations. And if you look at minimum wages, Indonesia is the first column, light orange. Minimum wage is about 64% of either value-added or average income. 
And that too is high relative to many countries, including the OECD. So here's a country that has high employment protection legislation, that has high minimum wages, and it also has very high severance pay. That is, if you're fired, then you are entitled to weeks of salary, and it is extremely high relative to many countries. So yes, the critics have a point. On paper, it does look like a case of a country that is saddled with rather stringent labor regulations, and therefore there's something that one ought to do about that. Which is why the kind of reform agenda that one talks about is we need to reduce minimum wages, we need to cut back on employment protection legislation. These are two key items that critics of the current Indonesian labor market legislative framework say. My point is, will that be enough? Is this conventional, narrowly conceived notion of a reform agenda enough to respond to the challenges of the labor market that we have discussed previously? And my point is not really. Because the first thing that you need to explain is, how do I explain the fact that despite such onerous regulations, Indonesia has done well? So how do I resolve this quote-unquote macro puzzle? And why does it have a moderate degree of inequality relative to the past and to its peers? What is it doing that allows it to do what it is doing? If you look at specific studies, and I did one, gosh, ages ago, nearly 20 years ago, I'm one of the very few who actually said, we better be cautious about the employment impact of minimum wages. But the others have taken a much stronger view and said, no, there are negative employment effects. But this is a, still a point of debate. If you do global reviews, we are able to show that minimum wages have a negligible impact on aggregate employment. The kind of evidence that David Card and his co-author produced in the early 1990s. So evidence that was generated and harnessed in the early 1990s has withstood the test of time. Alan Manning from LSE in his major survey, which was published this year, says, we are still stuck with the elusive quest for finding out what are the employment effects of wages. Because we don't really know. We can't see it in the data. It is still the Loch Ness Monster in economics. And we do see renewed commitment to high minimum wages, even in the US. I know that the, the, there was an attempt to try and double the minimum wage at the federal level of the US. It failed, but the campaign remains active. ADB did a study and said, well, you know, and the ADB position was that, yes, minimum wages are a problem. But then they listed six constraints, including minimum wages. You know, there's uh, external sector fragility. There's too restrictive fiscal policy. Certainly there's overly generous minimum wage policy, but there's also complex business regulations. There's underinvestment in infrastructure. There's a skills deficit, and so on and so forth. So do you really gain much by simply removing one constraint and leaving the others intact. That's not going to do the job. So that's taking a selective and ultimately ineffective way of dealing with reform. So the key challenge, according to some authors, and, and a study that came out last year, is how to promote innovation-driven growth in Indonesia. It's ranked 85th in the 2020 Global Innovation Index, out of 130 countries. Its performance on the Innovation Index is well with the original peers and, of course, the OECD. There are major barriers that are involved here, including the lack of a tech-savvy workforce. The report says we need to strengthen the quality of basic and secondary education. 
we should enhance digital and technical literacy that is hampered by the digital divide and unsatisfactory quality of basic and secondary education. So this is a reform agenda proposed by the ADB in conjunction with the Ministry of Finance. If you read the report, they do not mention labor market regulations once. I've been kind, I said, have a limited role to play. They, in fact, end up saying that it has no role to play, although they don't quite say it like that. Therefore, we need to move on and ask, well, fine, we can't show a link between labor market reforms or lack of it and innovation, but can we show a link between labor market reforms and FDI? Indonesia gets a bad score in the media on the assumption that it actually is not good at attracting FDI. That is not true. It is the world's fifth largest recipient to FDI in, 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 in developing Asia and the world's 20th largest in absolute terms. And FDI inflows have actually been pretty good. Of course, India, Indonesia can attract more investment from foreign sources in the manufacturing sector. But the point remains is that will labor market reforms lead to the attainment of that goal? And my point is no. First, this is just uh, reiterating my point about FDI inflows doing reasonably well. And second, this is a number of what we know as the restrictiveness index on FDI, compiled by the OECD across a range of countries. You can see the bold letter 0.31. That represents Indonesia, which is reasonably high, but, but, but no means that, by no means the highest. And the standard view of the OECD and others is that if you want to attract FDI, don't even worry about the labor market. Focus on the restrictions on FDI itself. Why use a target that's far away from FDI and not focus on FDI restrictions themselves? Delimit, uh, you know, relax limits on foreign ownership and find other ways of making FDI attractive and the trade regime attractive. But there's no point in connecting it to the labor market itself. And that is the message from this literature. So what is the way forward? Well, I would argue the first and most helpful thing that the Indonesian government can do is to de-link labor reforms from growth and investment targets. Let us not use the bogeyman of minimum wages and other kinds of regulations say that's holding back growth, that's holding back investment, because we can't find the evidence for that. Instead, we should adopt a broader and inclusive notion of labor market reforms that align with key structural challenges. And what are these challenges? Well, we need to reduce gender disparities. We need to integrate young people more into the labor market. And we need to be able to reduce informality. And we need to be able to encourage innovation-driven growth. The current agenda, which is on the left column, covers wages, covers reform of severance pay, covers working hours, provides greater scope for subcontracting. But it does not at all talk about gender-friendly policies to boost labor force participation rate. It does not talk about targeted policies to reduce the incidence of need or the underutilization under rate among young people. It has nothing to say about policies to reduce informality. And it has very little to say about creating a tech-savvy workforce to promote innovation driven growth. It certainly needs better policy-relevant data, enhanced compliance with existing legislation, and a lot more resources to support labor market and social policies. That, to me, is a labor market reform agenda that's inclusive and broad-based, while the one on the left is rather narrowly pitched and will not respond to the challenges that the faces today. So on that note, I conclude, Chair.
For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.